Hello, my friends. Thank you so much for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. This show is for veterans, first responders, and their families, and honestly, for anybody who wants to recover from trauma. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible. Our vision is of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please help with this mission by following and rating this show on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This simple action will help others find help for PTS injuries. Your help in promoting this podcast could be saving a life. And we are rocking and rolling live for another edition of Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Our little video intro there stalled out for a second. I was like, oh no, here we go. Dan Jarvis, thank you so much for meeting, for uh, being with me this morning, sir. Hey, pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invite. I appreciate you making the time. Uh, what you have done and what you're bringing to the community is truly remarkable. I've watched the 220 uh, documentary. At, I got it written down here. What's the name of the, the big one-hour one with the 9-11? It's called, it's called Healing the Heroes of 9-11, The Way Forward. Healing the Heroes of 9-11, The Way Forward. Um, really, really powerful because they got into the weeds of what the, what the symptoms of an OSI, of PTSD, look like and how long it had been dogging them for, how they have been told, like everybody else has been told, that you just got to live with it. Uh, you can't fix it, so you just learn how to manage it better. And I have heard it within the veteran first responder community so many times, it's like there ain't no fixing it. The sooner you accept that there's no fixing it, the better off you'll be. You just live with the pain and learn to manage it. And this is what I've heard again and again. And uh, although I've been optimistic that eventually there will be a better way, uh, I prepare people for that as well, because that is mostly what I see within the community. And then you come along, and we've got a better way. So let's start, Dan, with right getting into the weeds of who you are before the mind strike, before the IED, and, uh, and move us forward. Sure, thanks. Um, name is Dan Jarvis. Uh, I served in the United States Army. I did 12 years active duty, uh, deployed to Iraq for 15 months. I deployed to Afghanistan for 12 months. Uh, was the drill sergeant in between the two. And I was uh, hit with an IED in 2011, uh, late July. It was on a dismounted patrol. I was leading a um, small contingent of U.S. forces with Afghan forces across the, the Tarnak River in the, in the Zabul province. And I stepped on the pressure plate, which detonated the ID that was maybe five to 10 feet away. So you can imagine um, it wasn't inside of a vehicle. It was literally the, you know, you could feel the blast wave. You could feel the heat. Uh, it was like a fireball that went straight up into the sky. Um, you know, knocked me on my backside pretty good. Uh, we had all kinds of comms issues after that. I, I busted the antenna on my radio. I couldn't even uh, communicate with the, my element that was up on top of the mountain. Uh, we were just trying to keep them in place so that they didn't come down through the same, you know, same area that we came through. Uh, but I had a, after being medevaced, um, I had a, you know, a significant problem with sleep. Uh, the first few nights after that IED blast, I would close my eyes and boom, I'd hear that explosion again. And my heart's racing 180 beats a minute. And I'm literally trying to put my gear on because I thought we were under attack again. And then after about the third time that that happened and I see nobody, nobody else is reacting, I'm like, Okay, something's going on here. Um, so I was pretty sleep deprived. I, I just kind of lived with it. Uh, if, as the deployment progressed, maybe three weeks after that IED blast, you know, I lost uh, one of the guys in our platoon uh, who I felt extremely responsible for, and that was Doug Cordo when uh, his uh, striker got struck by an IED uh, fourth vehicle in the order of movement. And my job as a lead truck commander was to find the IEDs before we got to it, and then we could exploit them, and EOD could come up and, and defuse them, and when I realized that I had missed it, um, I just I literally hated myself after that. Uh, and I think what I, why I hated myself so much was I knew I was having a hard time. I knew I was struggling. You know, I should have been man enough to say, hey, I, I need somebody else up front. I'm not 100%. But, you know, being a leader, you don't want to leave your men to hang out there. Um, so I just continued to push through it. Uh, as the deployment came to a close, um, I got a Red Cross notification uh, that my, my mother had passed away. And that was really, I think, what kind of spun everything upside down. Uh, after 
being home from the funeral, I was up back up in Alaska. It was literally like three weeks prior to, to us redeploying. So I went home to the funeral, came back to Alaska, and I found myself uh, self-medicating. You know, I started drinking uh, because that was the way I found I could sleep, right? So it was rinse and repeat after that. So I had a, a heavy uh, self-medication issue with alcohol uh, just to be able to sleep. And it was almost a year forward after we'd been home for a while that I was actively suicidal uh, because I was like, you know, I was exhausted. I was emotionally exhausted, physically exhausted, um, had no real sleep whatsoever. I mean, literally, it's just you're, you're just running on adrenaline and alcohol and a lot of self-isolation. And it was uh, March 2nd of 2013 that I was looking at that rifle. And I was like, you know what, if this is the rest of my life, I'm not interested. And a couple things happened. The kids that lived in the apartment above me, I heard them running across my ceiling, their, their floor or their apartment. And that just kind of took me out of that moment because yeah, I didn't want to hurt a kid. I knew a high power rifle would probably go right through the floor. So I, you know, I just passed out that night, like every other night. And then the next morning I got a phone call from Ryan, who was my driver in Afghanistan. And one of my soldiers, um, had told me that Corey Smathers had taken his life that same night. And Corey was a young 22 year old soldier. You know, he's what we would have called a coach's player in football. You know, he was the yes guy. You know, he never complained about anything. He was always happy and always trying to help other people. Uh, and it was really sad to know that he could not help himself. And nobody knew that this guy was struggling. And then I realized, well, heck, nobody knew I was struggling. And from that moment forward, I always say that Corey saved my life. Unfortunately, it's when he took his own. Uh, just to see how the men reacted and responded to it, I was like, this, this can't be uh, this can't be my active. I can't go out this way. I can't give permission to one of my guys to do the same thing. And it hurt him so deeply. Um, maybe I was their brother. And so I just continued pushing forward. You know, I'd had, you know, by that time I'd already had a surgery on my left knee and my left shoulder. And then, and I had to have another sur surgery on my right shoulder. And that's when the army said, Hey, we need your, we need your position for a healthy and non-commissioned officer. And I get it. You know, you, if you can't do the job, somebody else has got to do it. You know, that's, you know, national security. That's what the country depends on. So I medically retired. And then I took that uniform off and I traded it for another uniform. I went right in, back into law enforcement. Yeah, that's what um, a lot of guys do. Yeah, it's one uniform to another. You know, I had worked law enforcement before 9-11, so I was experienced with it. So I, I, you know, one of my um, wounded warriors, I made a, had a good relationship with his family. His father was the sheriff of Seminole County, Florida, and he's the one that talked me into going back into law enforcement. So I did. Um, and a weird thing happened. Things kind of got normal again. And I didn't know, I do know now why, but I didn't understand at the time. I said, well, okay, this is good. I, I well, you're this. wearing the vest again. You got a gun again mm -hmm. and you're feeling large and in charge again. And you're switched on again. And that being switched well, on is one of the things that's tough with transition because when it's not life or death anymore, uh, your mind just kind of wanders. No, exactly. Because when you're, you know, if you look at first responders, every day of their lives is operating in the fight or flight. Yeah. You know, that's why there's so many, that's why there's so many health problems with first responders, but you don't feel like a fish out of water when you have that uniform. I'm supposed to be reacting this way. So I felt normal. It's like, it's, you know, a lot of the guys that want to go back to war, you know, because they feel normal in it, war. They it's don't feel normal back It's here. comfortable discomforts. The best sleeps totally. I've ever had in my life is with bombs going off all around me. I've never slept better. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. So anyways, I did law enforcement for a couple more years. Um, I had gotten married after the military and, you know, my, my ex-wife now, my wife at the time, we, you know, we decided that being a law enforcement officer in my mid forties, chasing 19 year old kids through the woods of Polk County, Florida, didn't seem like a, a really good use of my time. You know, I had a lot of back issues, spinal stenosis. So I had a lot of sciatic pain. So I'm like, well, you know what, maybe it's just, I'm vested in a state retirement. Let me, let's, let's go do something else. And then I, when I resigned that position, um, for, it was good for about a four, three or four days. And then boom, everything came back. And it was like, whoa, wasn't expecting that. Nightmares came back, night terrors, night sweats. And, you know, my ex didn't know how to handle it. And, you know, she asked me to share some of the stuff that I experienced and the look on her face was like in total disbelief. I'm like, what? That's not normal. It's normal to us, right? Yeah. Um, and then she she asked me to get help, and that's when I went down the the VA rabbit hole. Um, of course, the first protocol the VA wants to do is here, fill the prescription. All right, let's get you on some antidepressants or some anti anxiety meds. There's a pill for and everything. Then, yeah, it's exactly. It's like that's the easiest way to kind of like you know get us so that we're not you know bothersome. Uh, and then I went through uh, what they call prolonged exposure therapy. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that's where you oh, talk yeah. about you talk about the trauma, 
from beginning to the end. And it's a, it's like a 12 week uh, series and you're doing it for an hour a week. And then they give you homework assignments every day. And, you know, I think after the second appointment I had with the VA, they, I was getting ready to go to my third and they called to cancel. I uh, said, so the doctor had to go out of town. So I said, well, when can I come back? And they said, well, he doesn't have an availability for four weeks. I'm like, okay. So I scheduled it. I was left wide open for four weeks with all those emotions just bombarding me. You know, they opened boxes I didn't want to open. Um, and then I went back maybe one or two more appointments and then they canceled another one on me because the doctor had to go to a conference and I was like, well, when can I get back? And he's, they're like, well, he doesn't have availability for eight weeks. I'm like, this is supposed to be a 12 week process. Right. Um, and I'm like, all right, I'll check my schedule and I'll call you back. And that was it. I never called him back and they never called to say, Hey, how you doing? You know? Um, I mean, I still had to do meetings with the psychiatrist cause they require you to do that. Um, you know, and then I was like, at that point, that's when my journey trying to find a better way. You know, I was looking for ways that I could help myself. Um, I, I mean, I did EMDR, I went through accelerated resolution therapy, and then I found um, something out in New Mexico. I was invited to come out because I had already started the veteran nonprofit. You know, I decided, hey, this is what I want to do. You know, if I fell through the cracks, how many other people are falling through the cracks? It's got to be a lot of them. I mean, I'm a fairly educated guy. I've, I've held leadership positions. I worked in law enforcement. So, you know, I started the 220 in April of 2018 with, with no real solutions. You know, I just wanted to kind of be able to stand in the gap and look for something. There's got to be something better that's out there. And then there's an organization uh, that was putting on a training in something called the Reconsolidation of Traumatic Memories Protocol, RTM Protocol, uh, and it was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So I get the invite to go out there, and I'm literally sitting there through the first day of training, and then um, basically what happened was uh, I'm listening to these guys. I'm like, whoa, whoa. Cop brain, right? You guys are making some pretty lofty claims on what your process can do. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's like, uh, I was extremely skeptical. And, I, and I, the second day I was in the class, I'm like, hey, look, you know, if I'm going to recommend a vet or first responder to go through this process, I want to experience it. So the guy was like, oh, yeah, you want to do it in 15 minutes when we come off break in front of the class? So there's 25 mental health counselors in there. I didn't know any of them. And I'm like, I carried a gun for a living. I'm not afraid. I'm, I'll, I'll prove to the class that you're full of it. And, you know, no, no problem. Gotcha. And then I sat down into that process. It's kind of like cognitive behavioral therapy um, surrounding a visual kinesthetic disassociation process. And then cognitive behavioral on the end. So they have you talk about the trauma. And then when you get to that trigger point, they stop you. They, they break what's called breaking the state. They get you out of that. They reground you. And then they do this. Uh, series of disassociation process where you're actually not back in the trauma. You rate the intensity of that trauma like zero to 10. And I think that one was like a nine or a 10 because you know, I triggered pretty, you know, quickly. And I didn't expect that in front of people I didn't know. It's a little bit on the embarrassing side. Yeah. I've um, done it. But that, but then, but then I went through that. They got you regrounded. And I went through that process and then there's a rewind part at the very end of it. And then they have you think about the talk about the event again so I talked about it again. I was like, oh, wow, this is a lot less intense. You know, and then, then there's a rescripting part, and then they have you talk about it again, and then you rate the intensity of those emotions at the end of the session. So that went from a 10 to a 0 in about 45 minutes. Uh, and, and I was shocked that I could actually talk about the event without getting emotional because that was an event that you know, truly brought up a lot. And did it stick? And, yeah, well, yeah, I'll get to that. I'll, I'll tell you when I realized it was, this was legit. Uh, and it's funny how it took so long. Um, but I looked at the trainer that was doing the process. So I'm like, dude, what kind of Jedi stuff is this, right? And half the class is laughing. Half the class is crying, right? Because they just saw something that it, it red-pilled them, I guess, is the, is the right term for it. Yeah. Um, and, and then the sleep restores. And then you go back to a normal sleep pattern. And that starts what's called memory reconsolidation. And I'm like, holy cow, why is this not everywhere, Right. Um, and I told the founder of that process, um, he, what he did is he, he modeled a, a process that was developed for phobias in the early 80s. It actually probably existed in the 50s and 60s. And then he kind of added his flair to it with a, with a cognitive part on the front and the back of it. And I was like, dude, I would have wrote you a check for $10,000 when I was looking down that rifle if I knew this was real. I mean, hands down, it's, it, it's a no-brainer. So then we ended up as an organization, you know, fast forward. I mean, we're raising money. We're trying to get therapists trained to do this process. Um, and then August of the next year rolls around and I look at my Facebook feed 
And I realized I missed the anniversary of the death of Doug Corda. And I'm like, holy crap, you know, because for me, the month of August, the entire month was a trigger because I knew I was coming into a time where we, where we lost somebody and I felt responsible for it. But when I actually missed the anniversary of his death by like two days, that's when I realized, wow, this is, this is, this is crazy. So we continued forward. That would have been uh, 2019. And then I ran into a, a VA clinical psychologist and, you know, I spoke at a little event in Orlando and, and she came up to me afterwards and was like really beating me upside my head with her PhD, right? Telling me that this couldn't possibly exist. This isn't real. This is snake oil. This is fake. Meanwhile, the VA pay is funding a $700,000 study to, to, inve- to investigate the RTM protocol and compare it to the exposure therapy. Uh, that's another story in itself. And so I was like, look, just be open-minded. I said, I'll, I'll tell you what, I will pay for your training. I will pay for your lodging. I'll pay for your meals. I'll pay for your transportation to get you there, which would have probably cost me about $3,000 to give her a different perspective. And she says, in good conscience, she could never do it because the best thing for trauma is prolonged exposure. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, have you ever been through exposure therapy, doctor? And she was like, well, no. I said, well, how do you know it's the best thing out there? Well, that's, that's what the research says. I'm like, well, you've already made up your mind. And I said, and I respect that. I said, but you're going to force our organization to pivot. And we'll just train my brothers and sisters to the left or the right of me. And we'll just make you a whole lot less relevant. Yeah. So that was the drill. That was was a drill sergeant coming out. I got to chime in there, uh, Dan. I went through ART, which is Mm -hmm. reliving it in technicolor again and again and again. So a microsecond of an event, uh, the one that I tell all the time is when I hit a tripwire. So Mm -hmm. the feeling of that tripwire hitting my shin, I relived that moment, that microsecond for about 15 hours. That's a, and we never did get through it. You know, we never did fix it. So the, the net result of that was that I got worse, not better because Mm -hmm. I was re-traumatized again and again and again. And a second turned into numerous hours. And uh, before we just gave up and moved on to something else. So the the damage, and that's a form of exposure therapy. Uh, the RT right. uh, using, uh, watching your eyes go back and forth, kind of like EMDR. Mm-hmm. I could feel the gravel under my feet. I could feel the heat. I could feel the weight of my flak vest. I could feel the rifle in my hands. I could hear the sound of the gravel. And I could feel that tripwire hit my shin when I was at a full jog. I could feel it again and again and again. And then all of a sudden, out and, uh, when I, out and about, having anxiety attacks and things that, I, that never used to happen before because of the therapy. That, that actually made it worse. And I hesitate saying it, but it's the truth. That's the other mm-hmm. side of, of conventional therapy, especially if it isn't done right. So, But I still don't want to discourage anybody from moving their feet and doing something. You got to do right. something like, like don't do nothing, you know, uh, do the therapy, do something. But anyway, I just wanted to, um, chime in on, on what you're saying, because these therapists that haven't experienced what that's like from the patient's perspective, from the client's perspective, they don't know what they're asking. It's brutal, brutal work going through the exposure or therapy or things that, that are like it. Yeah. No, and a lot of people don't realize as you're reactivating those triggers, uh, you're, you're strengthening the neural pathways. And, you know, I think when the research on that comes out, they're going to realize that it's actually counterproductive to do the exposure therapy. Um, so, you know, we ended up, uh, it would have been about December of 2019, you know, and then of course, right on the horizon was the COVID, uh, COVID hits. And then all of a sudden all the money dries up and then we started having to do some some self evaluation. You know how you know we don't have the funds to to pay for therapists to get trained anymore. What, we, what can we do? So we regrouped, and the board got together and says, "Well, you know what? You know what what they did was they went to something that already existed. They modeled it, and then I'm like, do we really need to even do the content part? You know because we've worked with people who were so triggered. So here's the here's the secret. A lot of people don't realize when the when the trigger is active. It's malleable, which means it can change. So once that trigger is active, there's about a four to six hour window where you can change the state of the emotion attached to the memory. So we went down that uh, rabbit hole. It's something called neuro linguistic programming. It's called NLP. All right, it's been around probably since the early 1980s. 
uh, Dr. Richard Bandler, Dr. Uh, John Grinder were the, were the founders of it. And what they did was they took the best of what Milton Erickson, Fritz Perls, you know, and um, Virginia Satir and like literally took the, they were the giants of psychology in their day. And they, they took the best of what they were doing and they put it together in that body of work called NLP. And then they started training coaches and, and some counselors and therapists, you know. So what we did is we went back to that fast phobia cure is really what it was called. It was designed for people who are afraid of heights or afraid of like frogs, right? And then, of course, we tweaked the heck out of it. And we basically designed it specifically to target trauma memories. And here's the, the really cool part is when I say no content, what that means is we do not allow the veterans or the first responders to talk about the trauma, right? All we have them to do is briefly think about it till they trigger and then we get them right out of it. So that's just like peeling a little bit of an onion and we don't have to get it to attend. We can stop them at a five if we can, as long as that trigger is active. And then through dissociation, what we're doing is we're, uh, I'll, I'll give an example. I'll use my story, right? So before I stepped on the pressure plate and, and was almost killed, I'm up on top of the mountain in the Shah Joy district of the Zabal province. So I'm up on top of the mountain. So I create an image in my mind of me on the top of that mountain and I make it like a little snapshot, right? It's just a little image and then you drain the color and you make it black and white, right? So then I come down and the boom happens, all right, the bang. And then on the right side of it, I'm with Doc Greenberg in our aid station, right? Major Greenberg is, is treating me for the TBI and, and whatnot. So that's safe there. So I'm safe in both of those we call bookends and we create those black and white images and what that's doing is it's anchoring the memory in the subconscious. There's a beginning to the trauma. There's an end to the trauma. And the black and white imagery is like an old movie, right? It's in the past, right? So that's really what you're doing. You're setting that stuff up on a, on a subconscious level to be anchored in the subconscious. And there's a past to it. And then what ends up happening is you watch a dissociated movie of yourself running through that trauma, right? So in other words, I'm sitting on my couch in my living room. I have an 82-inch TV Picture one up on the mountain is on the TV. And then I move to what we call an observer position. And once that I'm in that observer position, I'm looking back on the couch and I see Dan, right? So now I watch Dan on the couch watch the trauma from A to B. So that's disassociated like, like two different layers. You're associated, disassociated, and second time disassociated. So what that's doing is it's pulling those emotions out of that memory. And I'm looking at Dan and I'm seeing, well, how is Dan reacting to the trauma on the TV? Well, you know, he's stressed out, he's wringing his hands, he's, you know, angry, he's crying, whatever. And then what you do is you manipulate that visual spectrum. That's the visual part of, you know, hey, we'll take that 82-inch TV and let's shrink it down to the size of a cell phone. And all I'm doing is getting the prefrontal cortex out of the way of the subconscious. So, Dan, I know Dan, what movie Dan's watching, so that's why I know he's stressed. So now that I see Dan's watching a, a phone across the room, now he's having a harder time seeing it, having a harder time hearing it. And that's further layering out the dissociation. And then when you get Dan comfortable in both the observer and the person on the couch, now what you do is you go into the end of the movie, into the aid station with Doc Greenberg. I fully associate into that memory like I'm reliving it. And then I watch the movie backwards rapidly in about two seconds. And I'm going to go from black and white at the end of the movie to color at the beginning. And what that does is that's reversing the order of the amygdala. So the amygdala thinks it's ending on the good part. Right? It thinks it's ending at the newer memory, and then it says, wait a minute, that's not what this mechanism in the brain is for, and it pulls the emotions out of it. So you can literally feel the, the, the disconnect of those emotions, because then what we do is we take them back into that, um, back into the, the memory. Think about it again. You, you might have been, been a 10 at the start, or an 8, or a 7, wherever you were, and now all of a sudden you're like a one, two, or a three. Because and the memory really, isn't the problem. It's the emotional attachment uh, to the memory. Bingo. The memory is not the problem at all. It's not the visual. It's the feelings attached to it. Which is why so we can watch something horrible on TV and, and it does nothing to you because you're not attached right. to it. Exactly. So what happens is when you get them to like a three or less, all you do is filter a positive memory back through the amygdala. All right, so... You know, we have um, one of the things that we like to do, think about the person you have the most affection for in the world, the, the most love you have. And then you, you get them feeling that the way they feel for that individual. And then, hey, you see, I want you to make a dial and you're going to turn that dial up and that, that intensity is going to go up 10 times. And all of a sudden they're feeling more for that individual. And what that's doing is that's overriding the emotional attachment to the first to the trauma, trauma memory. So now 
you know, even if they may have been a three, now you're down to like a zero, right? And then you'll see things like people yawning or they can't keep their eyes open or like, man, I'm exhausted. Or some people may even get a headache, you know, because you're doing, you're rewiring the brain at that point. So what you're doing is you're detaching the neural pathway from the amygdala that's attached to the memory, that's attached to the emotion. And then the emotion disconnects from the memory and then they reattach to different parts of the brain. The memory goes long-term into the cerebellum. The emotions goes into the hippocampal region and then the memory reconsolidation process starts. And the, the cool part was, we started seeing this um, over and over again. And I'm not a, I'm not a numbers guy. I don't need to see data, right? I just need to know something works. And we had a clinical psychologist that was working with us at the time. She retired out of the VA. She's like, you got to get the data. You got to get the data. I'm like, Dr. Corvea, I don't need the data. I don't need the data. I see it working. She goes, you got to get the data. So I'm like, all right, we'll do, we'll do a hundred cases. So we brought in a first group, first batch of a hundred where we ran the protocol and we did their scores at the beginning and we did their scores at the end. And what we use, we use an older metric is called a PSSI five, which is like the post-traumatic stress disorder symptom scale interview version five. It's a, it's an 80 point subjective test. All right. Similar to what like the PCL, almost identical questions. And you'll get up to four points per question. So 80 is the max and 20 is the considered the floor for PTSD. So if they're 20 to 80, they're in the PTSD range. Anything over 40 is high risk because that means four or five days a week, a person's struggling. And we find them with high 70s, which means every day of the week suck for them. Yeah. So we had that, that first 100 um, with between one and four sessions, all 100 of them dropped below uh, the PTSD, even the subclinical threshold, which would be like 10 to 19. And uh, the scores average were 56 on the front end. And then after the fourth session for the last person, they were down to about 2.12. All right. We had one Marine that requested a fourth session. Everybody else was done in three. And then, so we did a replication study. All right, let's, let's see if this is a, a one-off. So we did another hundred cases. Their average, they were mid fifties as well. And that was a bulk, a bulk of them was a civilian group. And they were between one and three sessions were average about 1.6. All right, this is crazy. All right, now we got 200 case studies. You know, it's independent. It's our data. So, I mean, we're, we're at the point now where we're actually going to be getting independent data outside of us um, because don't take our word for it. You know, let another you know, group, you know, validate it as well. Uh, and then we did a study with the children. So we had 66 children ages 4 to 17. Uh, they were mid-40 average, and their scores dropped to 0.6, which means asymptomatic, no symptoms almost whatsoever. And 78% of the children were finished in a single session which blew my mind, but kids are so resilient. Um, you know, and we ended up finding uh, um, godsend Dr. Phil Bequy. Uh, he reached out to me, you know, at the end of last year, because uh, he heard of what we were doing. And he's like, yeah, he sounds a little hokey. He's got an Australian accent. He goes, sounds a little uh, snake oilish. I said, yeah, it does. And uh, he goes, well, I got to check out your training. When's your next training? And he came down and he trained with the Sumter County Sheriff's Office. So we were actually training peer support teams for law enforcement and firefighters. And he came down to that training. And uh, day two, he's like, hey, can I talk to the group? I'm like, yeah, sure. He goes, and he looks right at me. He goes, I came down here to prove you were full of crap, basically. But he didn't say crap, right? Um, and I'm like, yeah, cool, skeptics, we need you. That's the only way we're going to get this thing ever approved. And, you know, he, here he is, a psychologist who's got years of training and initials before and after his name, and it just blew him away. So now, you know, we just trained his clinic. So he's got about, I want to say about 20 therapists that work between two clinics. And we just went up to Mississippi and we trained them. And they're going to do a, a whole separate independent study. Um, and then we had something else pretty remarkable happen is we connected with a Dr. Dave Hagdorn who works out of Camp Lejeune and he works with MARSOC, Marine Special Operations guys. Because uh, I had told Phil, I said, you know, I really would love to see what's happening in the brain when we do the process. And literally he finds this guy, Dr. Hagdorn, who's also an Army vet. And two days later, the guy's driving to Maryland to meet us or to meet me to work with a police officer up there um, with a brain scan. What he's doing is a QEEG. So he does the QEEG on her brain and then does the subjective scores. And he looks right at her and he goes, you know, your scores, your brain scans are the worst I've ever seen. And he goes, I work with MARSOC. I work with Marine Special Operations guys. And then he looked at her subjective scores. She was maxed for PTSD. She was maxed for anxiety. She was maxed for depression. And he goes, your brain scan matches your subjective scores. And she felt so much relief. She's like, I've been trying to tell them that, right? 
because obviously you can't see what's going on up here and and a lot of disbelief for what first responders have to deal with. Here, here she is, a police officer with 21 years. So we did the brain scan, and then I did two hours worth of work with her, and we went through her first 20 years of her life. We just we went through all the trauma in her past, and we did a lot of disconnecting of neural pathways. She comes back the next day, and then what we do, what she did was, she said, wow, I, I slept last night, six hours. That's unusual. I've only get usually an hour a night. I said, well, that's just the start of it, right? And then I did another maybe hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes with her on that next 20 years of her life, 22 years. And at the end of it, she's like, oh, is this normal? I says, is what normal? She goes, I feel like I'm floating. I said, yeah, you've been carrying a heavy rock. You just let it go, right? It's like, a, that's the way I look at it. When I, when I had that release, it's like walking up a mountain in Afghanistan with 100 pounds on your back and you get to the top and you get to drop that rock. That's really what it feels like, at least it did to me. And, um, and then they did the brain scan again after we did that second session. So we're, we're talking a brain scan. It's within 24 hour window. And what it showed was the amygdala and hippocampal region turned back to normal. She literally came out of fight or flight and that memory reconsolidation already started. Her perception of her scores dropped drastically the way she was feeling in that moment. And then I did end up doing another session with her, um, uh, after maybe a week or so later, but the, the Dr. Hagdorn said that the readings are profound and he goes, and what it shows is we're not dealing with a placebo. We're dealing with a neurological change in the brain. So what our intent is to do is to prove that it's an injury over an illness, right? We well, don't say we that's, cure. that's well established, Dan. It's well established yeah. that it's a neuro, that, uh, OSIs or PTSD is a neurological injury. When I was talking to a potential sponsor a couple of years ago in the beginning of the show, when there was only like 70 episodes or whatever, goes oh so it was just an emotional injury or that 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 he had like oh man <laughs> no it's it's not psychological it's neurological yep, yep. so what, what's going to end up happening is we're going to change the conversation especially like in the law enforcement community you look at what's going on right now in the country um it's a tough time to be a police officer oh, right very tough never been tougher so we we worked with an agency in florida and we trained 13 of their deputies and 10 of the 13 would have qualified for a clinical diagnosis of PTSD. And they're working every single day. That's how much pressure and stress they're working under. And then we wonder why they're having heart attacks and strokes at young ages or getting diabetes or, or having autoimmune disorders. It's just that's just the way the brain, that body keeps score. Right. So um, now running through the training, they go through the process so that, you know, their scores will go back to normal. Um, but it's it's just remarkable because, you know, Cops were skeptical, right? We have trust issues with people, you know, and, and I went into the training. I'm like, and I'm like, all right, who thinks I'm crazy that we can heal PTSD quickly? Of course, 10 out of 13 hands go up. The only three hands that didn't go up were people that we already worked with, right? So they're, they're just giggling in the back of the room, just can't wait for it, right? And day two, maybe half the hands go up. And day three, I had one holdout. I said, Clay, what's going on, man? He goes, well, I didn't, I didn't work on my big one. So I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm still, the jury's still on. I said, well, what is your big one? And he triggered really quick. He goes, I don't want to go there. I said, you already did. And we set the process up and it literally took me five minutes to disconnect it. And he was like, okay, I'm a believer. So all of them, every, every time we go to these trainings, you know, it's, it's remarkable. We're actually next, um, in June, we're going to be going out to Tucson to work with the border patrol. Um, and that's going to be a, a huge avenue for us um, because don't take our word for it. Take the active law enforcement officers and firefighters that are working. Oh, sign know, me and, up, coach. Put yeah, me, I'm put, telling put, you, put man, me in, coach. It, get me down there. If, I uh, I got to figure out how to get on a plane. I'm not allowed yet, but um, I, I, honestly, I've got to get down there and, and attend one of uh, the next time you're having a, a group. I got to get my butt down there and go through it and and learn this. Yeah. Because if uh, are you scaling this then? So uh, you, you're not just leaving it up to practitioners, up up to psychologists and whatnot. Um, no. Nope. Uh, like anybody can learn these protocols and how to administer them. So so what we do is we actually train veterans and first responders. Like if we train an agency, that's they're on them. They're working under the scope of their the policies of their agencies. For us, we can train veterans and first responders that are independent of an agency that want to, you know, contribute to a cause bigger than self. Uh, we got a pretty good core group of coaches right now, and I'll give you an example. Uh, we had a somebody did a YouTube video that kind of went viral, and then all of a sudden we just got slammed with requests. So I went, man, how? Because we're all volunteers, right? You know, all the coaches are volunteers. I mean, there's no way we can scale this. So I talked to the board of directors, twenty two zero. I'm like, 
hey, uh, what if we pay these guys, you know, 100 bucks a vet or 100 bucks a first responder? And so I started putting those feelers out there. They're all like, yeah, yeah, sign me up. I'll do it. Take, you know, because you got to pay your bills, right? And so we start paying our coaches. So now we're paying veterans and first responders to actually work with other veterans and first responders, which changed everything for us. So the first quarter of 2022, um, which actually majority of it came late January, like January 28th is when that video went out until March 1st, we worked with 328 people. Okay, that's a lot of people, right? But that's not nearly enough what we need to because eventually we're going to get into the right avenues um, where we're going to have to scale it in ways. We're, we're, we're scaling it now is what we're trying to do. We're finding methods and ways to train more people uh, because not all of our coaches are equal, right? You got some that are driven and, and motivated. Um, you got some that are thinkers. Our analytical thinkers are a little bit more complex because they want to know everything that's going on and that's part of the issue is uh, we don't allow details and content. And a lot of our thinkers try to get into the, the weeds of why, what's your trauma about? It? And we don't do that. So we have to really yeah, you know, in, focus. In, in uh, peer support, we call it the war porn. Um, no, right. No, no, no point yeah. setting people off because if I hear somebody's war porn story, great. Now I've got, now I'm carrying your shit because I didn't just hear Correct. it. I, I just lived it the way that you yep. lived it. Yep, because you're literally running the entire scenario in your brain, and the brain doesn't know the difference. Yeah, and in a way that a, that somebody that's never been in a war could possibly do. Like a friend of mine that I served mm-hmm. with uh, tells me about the first time that he took a life, and the circumstances were so horrendous. Um, I'm like, well, thanks for that uh, technicolor description right. there, brother, because now I did it. Yep. I just lived it. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Which so is why we don't do the war board. Yeah. So it's, it's really kind of cool because I don't know if you're familiar with like ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. Yeah. There's so much data on the ACEs. Um, and, and guess where a lot of people with high ACEs go? Well, into uniform Mil- services. The higher the military. Aces, yeah. Yep. And yep. the, the, and high, the higher the them, score, the more they go into the uh, soft community. Correct. You know, but the cool part is we allow them to work on their childhood stuff with not ever having to utter a word. It's all right here. All we do is guide the brain through some series of guided visual imagery and the release happens. Well, one of the things uh, that keeps people from reaching out for help uh, is that, well, yeah, maybe I've got a problem, but, you know, so much of it happened in my childhood. And and I hear this mm -hmm. fear that, well, what if they find out that it happened in my childhood and, you know, maybe I won't have my VA claim now or maybe they won't look Mm -hmm. after me or you know, or maybe I feel like I'm a scammer because I'm going for help through the VA um, or in Canada VAC. Uh, but really, my problems are from the well. That's everybody. Everybody's problems are from their childhood, and then amplified mm-hmm. by our service. And the service is 100%. what tip, service is what tips it over every time. Yeah, so it's it's been an interesting journey for us um, seeing the impact. You know, we trained a, a therapist out in Australia. She she had a son who was a combat vet. Um, we, yeah, we jumped into one of our trainings. We trained a doctor that was in Ethiopia. Um, I trained a police officer that's up in Canada. He's retired up there, but you know, so we're trying to get our tentacles spread out because trauma is not an, a unique to America. I mean, how look what Ukraine's going to end up having to deal with. You know, we've got a, a buddy down in South Florida who um, they're involved with ministry, so they're going overseas. Uh, we're going to be training a group of therapists in the Middle East, so we, we'll get it translated into Arabic. Uh, they're going to be dealing with uh, Syrian refugees in Lebanon. Uh, we have a, a, a pastor in a church in California who just translated it into Spanish, and he's going to be going down to El Salvador. Um, so this is just this is the coolest thing on the planet. For me, it's like so rewarding, you know, and, and you look at like, you know, Victor Frankl's, you know, his work with logos therapy, we're really standing on those shoulders of the giants. This isn't Dan Jarvis creating anything. What I saw is I went through something that changed my world. And I'm like, why is this not everywhere? And and our efforts is just to get it everywhere. You know, um, and it's it's all the work, the, the foundations were laid a long time ago, before I was even born. You know, and, and it's, it's cool to be able to take some of the work of some of those, you know, old you know, professionals and, and just kind of give spark new life and, and, and just absolutely um, share it. You know, that's our mission is to find a better way to heal trauma and share it. And that's really what we're doing. And we, don't, we never take a penny from veterans or first responders. So all the work we do is we're actually paying our coaches to work with them and never taking a dime from the first responders or the vets. 
can the training, or active member. Can the treatment mm-hmm. or the train, training be done virtually or does it have to be in person? It can be done just like this right here. No We've kidding. done trainings. Yeah, with COVID, COVID changed a lot of paradigms. Um, before COVID, therapists were never, never do anything telehealth, right? And then uh, COVID hits. And then we start, we did a training in person with the Florida National Guard first. That was our very first public training. And then we did, um, we had to go remote. And what we found is the same thing. The pro- all I got to do is be able to see the person I'm working with, because if they trigger, you don't want them going too deep. So you have to be able to pull them out of that, right? That's the yeah. other reason why I've done it on phones without talk, without seeing them. It's a last resort. It's a, if somebody doesn't have access, we don't like to do that because we want to be able to see how deep into the emotions they are because you really want to get them out. Like you don't want them, you want them running that protocol at a level one or two. You don't want them to be at a 10 associated. That's, that's so counterintuitive. Um, and, you know, and, and that's another issue that we have is a lot of people are afraid to do it because they just think of it as another therapy. You know, and therapy has become traumatic for a lot of vets and first responders. So incredibly so. To be, yeah. But to be able to do it without with no details, like I don't even need to know what it is you're, you're, you're working on. I don't have to know what the trauma is. You just have to know what it is. You could label it. You know, whatever. We usually call it like the event or the events if we're working with multiple traumas. And then you label your pictures and then you're watching the disassociation and boom, and, and you're resetting it. Uh, it's pretty remarkable. Some people that are hyper visual, you know, I worked with a Vietnam vet who was very visual, vividly visual guy. And we activated three triggers in the Vietnam War. And, of course, his bookends was the, the boat ride over and at home with his parents. And we took all three of those events. And it's almost like a cast net. We got them all at the same in the same session. So he was able to reset all of it at the same time. So you don't have to do years of therapy. You don't have to do, you know, weeks and weeks of, th- of exposure therapy. Uh, and you'll actually reset, you know, sleep, anxiety, all the triggers, gone. You know, and, and as long as you get them, you know, and they get all the work done, it changes the world and, and we've got scores to show it, you know, so it's, it's pretty wild. Now, how many years ago that you went through it? I went through August, September, September of 2018. Okay. So, I mean, we're talking just about four years here Yeah, and, and uh, it hasn't bit you in the ass. It's, you're nope. still clear. I can think about it. I can talk about it. That's how I can share my story. And when I do, everyone's like, how can you tell that? Like, there's no emotions attached to it. That's the, that's the key is I no longer feel those overwhelming visceral emotions. You know, I, yeah, sure. I still get sad at times. I mean, I, I lost buddies over there. I mean, that's a normal human emotion, but it's not controlling me. It's not, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm actually sleeping. I'm not having nightmares or night terrors. I'm not sweating in my bed so bad. I got to change the sheets in the morning. You know, I don't have any of that stuff. I'm not getting the heart rate. I can go to a restaurant and not worry about who's in the restaurant with me. You know, I can, I can do all of the things but th- that I could do before trauma. It is spectacular what, uh, what we're talking about here with anybody that has been through the meat grinder of therapy. For me, it was four or five years. And at the end of it, I'm like, I, you know, I'm done. <laughs> mm-hmm. This was a, this is the hardest thing I've ever, ever done. And Yes, there was progress, you know, and I'm very, very grateful for the progress that I did make. And there was also more damage that was done. So both things are true at the same time. At, uh, I'm still glad that I did it, and I'm glad that that help was there. But I've always said there's got to be a better way. There has to be. Uh, instead of having to to relive and go through the meat grinder, because the common story is the day before the day of therapy and up to two or three days after you could be completely fried, which is why they mm-hmm. put us on earnings loss benefit. Uh, so an income supplement while we're doing it, because you can't work a full-time job and do serious therapy over serious stuff. It, because, uh, because you're just wrecked all the time <laughs> for years. It's brutal. And, uh, and what that does to your family, because you're always on, it's like, oh, no, here comes the therapy session. This is, uh, it's like getting ready to get punched in the nose for every, mm-hmm. every Tuesday morning. And what you're talking about is something where, whether it's PTSD or complex PTSD, you can knock the head off it really quickly. And, um, and, and those symptoms abate very, very quickly. Correct. 
Is there also a link to the TBIs? Because TBI um, symptoms and PTSD symptoms are similar, although the modality of injury, the mechanism of injury is different. Um, but it would seem to me that it would still be that they work in concert with each other, the two injuries. Uh, but does do your protocols also help with TBIs? So here's the here's the cool part about the new research on the TBIs is you have to heal the trauma for the neuroplasticity to kick in. The brain will start to heal itself. So when you get the trauma out of the way and you get all those brain waves back to normal, then the brain can actually focus energy on repairing the brain itself. So that's, as to my understanding, you got to get the trauma and then the brain will then start to heal. But yeah, there are definitely overlapping symptoms um, because I've had both. I've had TBIs, I've had multiple TBIs, multiple blast injuries and and other concussions. but yeah, um, but I'm I'm pretty good. Has tinnitus even been? Because tinnitus is engaged through anxiety and is a byproduct of both neural inflammation as well. Mm-hmm. It's not just your uh, hearing a shot um, at all. Right. It's yeah. it's also neural neural inflammation. So uh, have you found that uh, tinnitus symptoms have been reduced from your protocols? Well, I would probably say no to that because I have. Wicked tinnitus. Right? <laughs> um, but talking with Dr. Dave Hagdorn, one of the things that he said is they could do the brain imaging and they can see where the, the brain is inflamed or whatever. And then there's a different type of therapy. But he says they, they have the capacity to eliminate the tinnitus. So I told him, I said, brother, if you can take my tinnitus away, I'll write you a check for a thousand bucks right now. Right. And he goes, how about I do it for free? So I got to make a trip to Camp Lejeune and I'll let you know how that goes because that affects a lot of us. Uh, it, I don't know many that don't have tonight. Is it? Yeah, it's some kind of mag. Yeah, some kind of. Well, the, they do the brain scan. They see where the I guess where it's lighting up for the tinnitus, and then they attack it with the with the magnetic frequencies or something. I don't know. I don't know what that that protocol is, but. But he said they can they can address the tinnitus. So I'm like, sign me up. Yeah, absolutely. Because the the barrier at Veterans Affairs, at least in Canada, is well, if there's no hearing loss, which I don't have miraculously. Uh, I mean, I've had a thunder flash go off within arm's length of my head, but uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> no hearing loss. Okay, neat trick. Um, that without the hearing loss, they're they're denying tinnitus claims. I'm fighting one right now. But it's not always because of hearing damage at all. It's neural inflammation. Mm-hmm. It's your brain. So the eardrums right. have nothing to do with it is one of the challenges. Yeah. Have you noticed in general health after going through the protocols, because when you're carrying anxiety with you, cortisol levels are higher and your immune system is down. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's higher rates of cancer within the veteran community because of uh, PTSD. So are you finding mm-hmm. that general health and immune um, and the immune system is increased by uh, after your protocols? Well, I, I can tell you right now, I've, I've had my cortisol levels checked as recent as like three months ago. They're normal. My adrenal, my, I don't have any of the adrenal fatigue, but before in the beginning, they were all reversed. They were flipped. So I had high levels, and I'm also a type 2 diabetic, which is also an autoimmune disorder um, connected to high cortisol levels, which I didn't ever realize. I did not um, know that. Yeah, cortisol levels can cause diabetes. Uh, and then, too, the self-medicating and drinking alcohol didn't help. But um, you know, that's just the reality of it. But, I mean, as far as, like, um, health-wise, we've, we've worked with folks who've had – um, inflammation, you know, had all of the, you know, you know, I'll give you an example, like, um, the, the, was it fibromyalgia? So people whose fibromyalgia symptoms diminished significantly. Uh, we had a, a woman out in, uh, New Mexico who would have, I would say, I think her cousin, one of our coaches is a cop out there said that she would have about 25 seizures a day connected to trauma. She no longer has seizures. So there's so many different, um, you know, obviously there's got to be research in all of that. I know what, I know it works for trauma. I know it works for anxiety. I know, you know, you know, we can take people with bad anger problems and we can diffuse the anger. You know, there's so many different applications uh, between the two protocols that we use. One we do is with emotions. It's more of a framing exercise. And then the other one is the trauma where you can actually disconnect the neural pathways. Um, but if you're resetting all of that, the likelihood of your immune system improving, I would imagine, would be significant. Uh, but that's all stuff that we have to really kind of do more research on. Well, 
it used to be with medical science that they would start with anecdotal and use that mm. as like, hey, there's something over there. Let's dig deeper and let's collect some data. Mm. But now anything anecdotal is like, well, we need the data. Hang on, uh, cart horse. <laughs> right. You know, we're having a little bit of an issue here. You need the anecdotal first to justify further research and, mm. and to start digging in. But I mean, it makes perfect sense. If you resolve the traumas, uh, have you seen Gabor Mate's The Wisdom of Trauma? No, I have not. Well, he it's, an, it's free online, The Wisdom of Trauma, uh, Gabor, G-A-B-O-R, uh, Mate, M-A-T-E. And he has dealt with people using ketamine therapy, stage four cancer. After resolving the trauma through ketamine therapy, the cancer went away and they were pronounced terminal, you know, like, like mm-hmm. this, this guy has, has no hope. But once the, uh, the trauma was, was resolved, the immune system was able to function correctly and cancer was gone. And that is not an uncommon story for those that have uh, used psychedelics to, to heal. That uh, not everybody is willing to try psychedelics. It, Difficult to get access to them, although there are ketamine clinics uh, popping up all over the place right now. But so accessibility to these protocols, to the uh, TRP and EMP processes, um, just through the website, or how does how do people uh, research and and get their their butts in the chair to try out these uh, these therapies? So they can go to the website if they want to research a little bit of the details. I mean, we don't put the process out there, but um, you can see a little bit of the stories. You can watch the documentary on our website, um, you know, hear our story. And then just there's a get help at 220. So the get help resource link um, will get email will come in to our staff and then they'll vet them. What they'll do is they'll determine their status. Um, veterans, first responders, there's no cost to it that we do. We do help civilians, but they pay for treatment. Um, and it's kind of a really cool pay it forward model. So for every two civilians that pay for treatment, we'll treat three vets or first responders. So we're able to help ex- our, our money can expand even further reach, uh, but to get help at 220.org, uh, email will come in, we'll send them an assessment. They'll, they'll get scored out. So we'll see where their symptoms are neurologically. Uh, and that's the first step. And then they'll get placed with a coach and then the coach will, um, work with them one, two, three, four times, however many times they need it. And then, then we do a follow-up about 10 to 14 days after the last session, and we score them again. And that's where you see the difference. And, and you know, that's where you see the 76 go to a zero or a two. or a, you know, If they're still at a 14, they're subclinical. They're not in the PTSD realm, but there's still something else there. And we know we can keep working with them until we get them down. We, want to, we like to get them under 10. If we get them under 10, they're no longer – they're not even in the subclinical uh, spectrum. So it's like eh, a fleeting moment of thought or you know, something. To take the course to become a practitioner, uh, how long is, is that time commitment to, to get to the point where you can administer this, these protocols yourself? Yeah, it takes a very long time. It's, it's two days um, after some self-paced. Uh, you have to watch all the video where you can get to see the academic part of it. And then we do two days of training on the EMP and the TRP. Um, and then we've added a component with Dr. Bequee because he does something called tactical presilience. We call ours tactical resilience. Um, he does a lot of the left of bang, getting people ready for the moment that the event's about to happen. Um, because a lot of it is in our framing, too, because we perception, not every critical incident is trauma. You know, he'd probably be a good person for you to have a conversation with. So if, if we do, you know, if we do a, a three day, it's 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 the presiliency and then it's TRP and then EMP. That's really about how long it would take. Um, but not everybody needs the, the tactical presence. If they're active in, in first responder or active in the military, that that's who, that's who needs that. It's about um, the because, same. It's about the same time commitment as a good first aid course. <laughs> exactly. That's incredibly right? quick. Yep, very quick. And then, and what we do with our coaches, because not all, you know, the coaches that we pay, you know, they give us twenty uh, pro bono cases. That's how we can vet their skill level as a coach. And then it's kind of like a selection process for us if. If you do those 20, you're doing well, we've got good data, you know, then we bring them on to be a, a paid coach. Well, um, hey, you're ex-infantry, so if you can do it, anybody can do it. Dude, we got Marines doing this. Whoa, crayon eaters? Yes, we got <laughs> Marines doing it. They're great at it, too. The, the, the reason they're so good at it is they follow instructions. So, yeah. And it's literally a, check, it's a checklist. You just go down a checklist. You, you know, it's a script. 
you know, it's simple. You just got to know when they trigger, how to get them out of that, how to set up the process, do the rewinds and the reset. I mean, it's, it's a really a simple process. And that's part of the problem. It's too easy. Is one of the uh, overarching names for these therapies reconsolidation therapy? Is that, is it that is one of the names? Okay. Well, uh, the the RTM protocol that Dr. Burke with the research and recognition, they call theirs the reconsolidation of traumatic memories protocol or RTM for short. What's happening is the brain is reconsolidating. Like the brain scan that we have, we show, okay, we now have definitive scientific proof that the brain is actually reconsolidating in a very short period of time, you know? So we're going to be getting our own brain scan that Dr. Bequee is going to be maintaining. And he's actually going to do an independent study of, of you know, try to get like 50 vets or first responders and, and track them over a year, you know, brain scans, treatment, brain scans, and then periodic brain scans to see how the brain is still reconsolidating, how long it takes the brain to actually reconsolidate everything. How many people can you train? Like what's the um, instructor to instructee ratio? So if it's just me doing the training, I'll, I'll maintain it around 10 people. Um, but if I have assistant coaches, we could probably go up to 30. As long as I got one coach per 10. Because usually if we do it in an online training, it's um, you got to be able to move between – I prefer in-person training. First, they're more fun, and I keep more hands-on. But we the we have breakout rooms in the Zoom, and we got to be able to jump back and forth. So it would need at least uh, one trainer to every ten. There is a tremendous will within the veteran community to help. That's why there's yeah. forty-five hundred different uh, forty-five thousand different uh, yeah. veteran organizations in the United States. I have no idea what the number is, but that's part of the reason that this show exists to try to find and vet mm-hmm. these uh, as best as I can to bring resources to people so they they can be aware of the resources. Um, to scale this, I th- like when I was an adult literacy tutor, it used to be each one teach one. So I first become a tutor, then a tutor trainer, a senior tutor, Mm -hmm. then a tutor trainer, and to teach adult literacy and uh, just teach one. But if you're to do the same model, but uh, each one that learns, just teach two and it would scale so quickly Mm -hmm. that um, because there's such a huge desire to to help our our sisters and brothers. Mm -hmm. So I could really see this scaling quickly. Yeah, scaling it like for us, you know, in the our biggest growth is probably going to come within the first responder community, um, and probably active military once we get to that level. Because I know we're going to get we're connected with some of the special operations groups, so we'll end up training some of those guys. And once that once they see it, right, and that's that's like the border patrol. We're training four. They've got an eighty five person peer support in Tucson just for veterans, the people that come out of the military, because a lot of vets go into the profession. So we'll end up training their entire eighty five person peer support team. And what we do with law enforcement agencies is we identify the really, really good coaches. And then the goal would be to train the trainer. So now I got Robert Bedgood at the Lake County Sheriff's office who's going to be really phenomenal because he's done like 50 sessions. We'll bring him in and actually train him to be a trainer so that I don't have to go to the Lake County Sheriff's office anymore. Robert Bedgood can train deputies at the Sheriff's office to do the process. And then, you know, and, and then we can significantly scale the cost because if our hands are off, you know, it's, it's saving us, you know, time and resources. So that's the ultimate goal is to do the train the trainer. Um, and then in the veteran space is just finding the organizations that are committed to actually helping the vets. And we've run into some that are, we've partnered with that are just phenomenal. And then uh, we've got the proverbial stiff arms, you know, um, that's the hard part is because dude, I'm just trying to share something with you. Right. And it's like, no, this is my turf to stay away. I'm like, we're not asking for funds. We're not asking for your donors. We're asking for the people that are struggling so we can get them to not struggle. You guys can do whatever you want. You can take that data back to your own donors and, and do your own fundraising. You know, but we're willing to pay our coaches to work with your clients. You know, that's, that's the goal. That's, you know, cause all I, all I want to do is set them free. That's it. You know, when you find your way out of darkness, it really is a moral, um, a moral imperative that we shine the light back in and show others the way. And that's really what we're doing. Well, I might be able to help you with that. I'm sort of a subject matter expert when it comes to resources, uh, mostly in Canada, but about 26% of my audience is in the States, and I've had numerous, mm-hmm. numerous American guests on. So uh, plugging into some of the different organizations, including one that I reached out to um, 
just just yesterday talking about your protocols. So um, perhaps I can help you, brother, and uh, and move this forward. Of course, I'll have to start at experiencing it myself, getting getting sorted out, and then moving from there. But thank you for Absolutely. the spectacular work that you do, and I am so looking forward to seeing more of it. And I want to talk to people that have, that have, that have been through it, and and if I can help you to scale it, I will. Uh, make it all over North America, and then go from there. Yeah, I'll connect you with our coach in Canada. You can have a conversation with him. He was a, a police officer outside of Toronto. Okay. Um, and then and then Dr. Bakui, if you want to have a conversation with him as well. Uh, he's a lot cooler than me. I call him Dr. Phil. But uh, <laughs> finally got somebody I, that I have a hard time keeping up with. He's, he's amazing. Fantastic. Dan, uh, thank you so much for making the time. Uh, this has been an inspiring conversation, probably the most hopeful one that I've had uh, in 216 episodes. Um, a big part of what I do is I'm always looking for a better mousetrap, a better way, because mm-hmm. there has to be a better way than the meat grinder that I've been through yep. uh, for this healing walk. And thank you. I'm, uh, I'm going to be exploring further for our listeners. All the, the um, links to his websites will be in the show notes for all the audio uh, podcast. So the vi- the video podcast, I'll try to put the links in there. But um, that website, one more time, 220.org. Yep. Yep. The number 220.org. You know, check out the documentary because that was designed to kind of walk people through a paradigm change. You know, the biggest trauma in our lifetimes, if you can heal from that, you can heal from anything. Brother, thank you so much for being on the show and for sharing all of this. And please stay on the line. You're Thanks. listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Hello, my friends. Thank you for sharing your time with me today. I hope you found value in today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, healing, or informative, please let me know by leaving a rating on either Spotify or Apple. And please share, share like the sugar bear on all of your social media channels because sharing is caring.